Hello to everyone joining us on the stream, and uh, a special hello to everyone who is in the room with me. Um, isn't it great to be back? Um, there's not, this, this place isn't, you know, we don't have more access to God here, um, but there is something significant about being a gathered community of believers. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I, it just felt great to be able to worship together this morning uh, as a gathered community, albeit silently. Uh, but God hears the, the song of our hearts, doesn't he? And I, I believe there were some harmonies kicking off in this room this morning. Yes. So, before I begin, I'm just going to pray quickly. Father God, deliver me from anything I have may, may have prepared that is not of you. Uh, Father God, I submit this morning to you, Father. I, I, I ask that as we come to the word, you would speak uh, with clarity uh, through the pages of, of, of your revealed word. Uh, Lord, that, that you would help whatever is in my notes jump out at me or disappear as, as is in accordance with your will. Father God, give us ears to hear and hearts that are open. Amen. So, as I say, it is my great privilege to be um, here this morning. I think this is the first preach in the building since lockdown, uh, so no pressure. Uh, and, and it also happens to coincide with uh, the beginning of a new preaching series. Uh, we're looking at the book of 1 Timothy. Um, so, by way of providing a little bit of background... 1 Timothy is what's known as a pastoral epistle. Um, so a pastor is a shepherd or a disciple, um, and an epistle is just a posh word for a letter. Okay, so what we're looking at here is a discipleship letter. Um, so it's Paul writing to his young protege, Timothy, uh, who he left overseeing the church that Paul himself established uh, in his earlier mission trips in Ephesus. Uh, we first meet Timothy in the book of Acts when Paul is in Lystra and he meets, his, meets Timothy's grandmother uh, and is introduced to Timothy as a young man of good character uh, with some Christian leadership skills. Um, Paul has been discipling or mentoring Timothy in Christian life and ministry and they have a very close relationship. Uh, if we, when, when we actually get to the text, uh, you'll see Paul refers to Timothy as a son in the faith. He calls him that, uh, not trying to take the place of Timothy's earthly father, uh, and certainly not to take the place uh, of his heavenly father. Um, but he calls him that as a means of, of communicating his commitment to, uh, the commitment and fathering attitudes uh, towards Timothy when it comes to growing and maturing in faith and in ministry. Uh, see, in Matthew 28, Jesus gives us the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, and this is something that Paul has taken very seriously, as should we. Uh, we're not commanded to make converts, but disciples. And Paul knew that discipleship is best done in close, genuine, and committed relationships that edify those involved and direct them to become more like Christ in the same way that Jesus modeled with the Twelve. So, without falling down that little uh, discipleship cul-de-sac, let's, let's move on. Let's jump into this morning's text, which is uh, 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 11. So if you have your Bible with you, I hope you do, then grab it. Let me... Oh, well, that was a nice noise, wasn't it? hope you enjoyed that at home. Um, so we are 1 Timothy 1 to 11. Paul... 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of our God and Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there emphasis so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about and, so, and what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those who practice homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he has entrusted to me. As ever, I could just stand here and read that, and that would be worth our time. But I am going to attempt to unpack some of it. So, uh, so one of the key things that Paul is, is writing this letter to Timothy. Now, later on you'll see he addresses a lot of other stuff, but he begins and ends this letter um, uh, by warning Timothy of these people that are preaching false doctrines, these false teachers. Um, yeah, he's warning Timothy uh, that there is a need for him to bring these certain men under his authority and restore correct teaching within the Ephesian church. Now, the church in Ephesus, as I'm sure we're all aware, but it bears repeating, uh, is in a really key location. Um, it's a Roman trading hub, and as such, it was strategically placed for the spread of the gospel. From there, the gospel was picked up and spread all across the Roman Empire, all across the Persian Empire. It, every, everyone came to Ephesus. It was a really important trading hub. Uh, and it was strategically placed for the spread of the gospel. But there's a flip side to that. The flip side, of course, is that <laughs> all these ideas and uh, different philosophies from all these other countries, all these other kingdoms would also come there. Um, and and that, that resulted in some of these ideas infiltrating the church and, and influencing uh, these false doctrines uh, and pushing people into practices that fall outside the, the, the uh, boundaries, the parameters of biblical orthodoxy. So orthodoxy just means right thinking. Um, so the main areas, the main things that Paul is warning Timothy about uh, in the Ephesian church, but for the, the early church in general, uh, are outlined in this opening section of the letter. He talks about myths, which, which kind of would fall under the, when we actually look at it, the, the banner of Gnosticism. Um, there's genealogies and there is legalism, people who are misusing and misteaching the law. So let's start with Gnosticism. It is a heck of a word. Ahaha. Hello for those who have just joined me on the recording. It's lovely to see you. Um, so 
Uh, Gnosticism. Mad word. But Gnosticism was, was one of the, the most dangerous heresies, uh, in, certainly in the first two centuries of the church. Although it was not as refined a philosophy then as it is now, um, its central teaching was that the spirit is entirely good um, and, and pure and holy, and that the body, in fact all matter, the entire physical realm, uh, is therefore evil. Uh, this idea is called dualism. Uh, and it's entirely unbiblical. Um, and see, the, the problem with dualism, this idea that spirit good, matter bad, um, from that flowed five main false teachings, five main stumbling blocks uh, for the church. The first one is that man's body, which is matter, and the Bible tells us it's made in the image of God, um, is therefore evil. So that's the first one, that man's body, which is matter, is inherently purely evil. The second one, uh, salvation is achieved through escape from the body, uh, not by faith, but by special knowledge. You know, the idea that we see in Buddhism now, that if, if we could only transcend the physical with our spirit, then we would be free and pure, and, and that would be salvation. Um, the third uh, heretical thing that, that comes from this idea is that since God is wholly good, then he must be Holy Spirit. Uh, now, this causes problems for Jesus, um, or appears to cause problems for Jesus. Nothing causes a problem for Jesus. He's got it sorted. Um, so, the humanity of Jesus is, was denied in two different ways. Um, the first way, some taught that Jesus only seemed to have a body, uh, that he was actually a spirit that just kind of was projecting, you know, like in Star Wars, where, where uh, every now and again someone just appears through the use of the force. Hello, young Padwan. All that kind of stuff. That, that is the idea. Uh, and this view is called docetism. Um, it's a similar line of thinking uh, that we see in the Quran. Um, so in Islam, where they to, to deny the crucifixion of Jesus, um, in the Quran it says that the, the Messiah only appeared to die, only appeared to be on the cross. Uh, and and that's, that's one of the tactics that, that uh, the Gnostics used to deny that um, God was actually in the form of man in Christ. The other way they did that, uh, others taught that the divine spirit of Christ joined the man, Jesus, at baptism. Uh, therefore, reducing Jesus from being fully God and fully man um, to more of a uh, spiritual anointing placed upon a special man that left the man Jesus before his death. Uh, this heresy is called Corinthianism, uh, and that's named after its most well-known teacher, Corinthus. So that's three of the, the big problems. The fourth big problem was since the body is evil, um, it was to be treated harshly. Uh, as if by punishing and mistreating our own bodies, we were literally warring against and punishing the sinful vessel that oppressed our pure spirit. Uh, that's called asceticism. And the final one, now this is where it gets strange, because Gnosticism is, is the, the idea that, that spawned asceticism, where we, we have to mistreat ourselves. But it also spawned this other idea, um, 
basically, which it goes in the exact opposite direction. Um, the idea that since the body uh, is sinful, uh, rather than breaking God's law, actually, we can break the law as much as we want with our bodies, as long as our spirit's okay. Uh, you know, we can, we can do whatever we want, sleep with whoever we want, get in fights, say whatever we want, because it's all physical stuff. Um, but as long as our spirit's okay, then there are no moral consequences for what we do with our body. Uh, some of this, I don't know about you, sounds very familiar. This is not just a problem in the early church. This is a problem in society today. Um, but we'll come back to that. <clears throat> so that's Gnosticism. I'm using a lot of big words, so if, any, if at any point anyone has no idea what I'm talking about, just stick your hand up and tell me to speak like a normal person. Um, but in this opening section, Paul also talks um, about people who are wasting their time uh, on spiritual pedigrees and genealogies which only lead to meaningless speculations which do not help people live a life of faith in God. So, uh, the genealogies. So a genealogy is, is basically like a family tree. Um, and there are a couple of components to this. The first is a matter of people struggling with their true identity. Uh, you know, you see it these days, there's a TV show called Who Do You Think You Are? Uh, and it's all about going back in your history and to find out about your ancestors. Uh, as if somehow that informs who you are now. Um, so th these guys were looking into their ancestry in order to discover their roots, uh, to inform the way they see themselves in the present. And while there is nothing inherently wrong with knowing where you came from, um, it's easy to forget that our identity as believers, as Christians, our primary identity is not a matter of our history. It's a matter of our destiny. Okay? It's not about where you've been. It's about your relationship with him. Does that make sense? The second and more obviously heretical issue Paul is uh, referring to here is the practice of being baptized for the dead. Um, basically, this was a heresy within the early church uh, that, thought, that taught rather, uh, that those who are living uh, can be baptized on behalf of their dead relatives who didn't know Jesus, who weren't saved, but by, by the living person being baptized, in their place, they would be made right with God and enter eternity. Paul goes on to speak about uh, people who want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, uh, but they don't know what they're talking about, uh, even though they speak so confidently. There's plenty of that going on today as well. And Lord, if I'm guilty of it, speak to me later. <laughs> uh, but here, Paul is referring to those who fell into legalism. Uh, this was a group known as the Judaizers. Uh, we've already met the Judaizers in our study uh, through Galatians and I think in Acts as well. Um, but basically, the foundation of, of, of legalism is a failure to properly understand the gospel and grasp the grace afforded to us through the cross. Therefore, these guys went about teaching that grace and faith are not enough to be saved. No, no. In order to enter salvation, you must first fulfill the requirements of the law of Moses. To become a Christian, you must first become a Jew and then become a Christian. 
And whilst they spoke at great length and with an air of authority about the importance and requirements of the law of Moses, they did so without truly understanding the impact of the gospel and the full significance of Jesus' life, death, and sin-crushing resurrection. They taught that the law as if it were a map, uh, a how-to guide on walking the narrow path. They taught that if you tick all the right boxes, say all the right prayers, get circumcised, don't eat these foods, and take part in these ceremonies and feasts, then, and only then, would you be able to access the grace of God. Only then could you attain salvation, as if salvation is something we could ever attain for ourselves. It's not. In verse 8, Paul tells us that the law is not intended for those that do right, but for the sinner. In other words, the proper use of the law is not as a map that we should follow, but as a mirror that we should hold up to our lives in order to see our sinfulness and our complete inability to attain salvation through anything other than full and total dependence on the grace of God given to us through Jesus. In an in a earlier letter to the Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 2.8, uh, Paul says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. So you can see there's quite a lot of false teaching going around Ephesus at this point. You're starting to understand why Paul is writing this letter. So it's it's really no wonder that Paul felt the need to write to his son in the faith, a fellow disciple of Christ, Timothy, and instruct him to bring order to this community of believers. But sadly, this is not just a first, second century problem. We still see much of this false teaching in the wider church today. You don't have to look very far to see congregations that forego solid biblical teaching in favor of a soft rock concert full of faulty theology and man-centered lyrics, followed by a loosely Bible-themed motivational speech. The focus is on experience and signs and wonders and very little attention paid to the scriptural foundations required for moving in the faith. And for every group that slips into unbiblical hyper-spirituality, there is another that has fallen into unbiblical legalism and dead works. And here's the real kicker. Both of these groups, although they, they both have very generally unloving uh, outlooks. They're very unloving in their estimation of of the other. Um, And both use the same scripture, the same Bible that we read, to justify their position and throw rocks at each other. So what's going on here? (laughs) Who's right? Who's wrong? And how can they both be looking at the same thing and come to such drastically different positions? Not just different positions, but both wide of the mark when it comes to the truth of the gospel. See, as with so many aspects of the Christian walk, 
Things are not as simple as a choice between being spiritual and being scriptural. And when we oversimplify it this way and make either extreme more foundational than the other, we risk falling into false teaching as the Ephesian church did. Gnosticism was about separating faith and deeds as a result of attempting to move in the spirit in ways that fall outside of the Bible's teaching. Legalism is about the predominance of deeds over faith, which happens when people attempt to interpret the words of God apart from the Spirit. So if we are to understand this book, then we cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. And if we are to live our lives in line with God, the Holy Spirit, then we must do so in strict accordance with his word as revealed through scripture. So we see that Paul's actually set Timothy quite the task here at the beginning of this letter. If this still quite young church is already under this much attack from false teaching to the point where we still see it today, then how should Timothy discern what is false from what is true and bring correction and restore the church to the truth of scripture. Well, the best way to spot a fake is to know the original. You see these, these guys, when someone comes in with a, a diamond that they want to evaluate, they get out their little thing. I've got no idea what it's called, but I like it. And they, go, and they, they know what a diamond looks like. So when someone comes in with a cubic zirconia, they can tell the difference straight away. And, and it's the same with scripture. It's the same with making sure you are doctrinally sound. And the only way to know the truth is by engaging with God in both word and spirit. We need both. The importance of word and spirit in discerning true and genuine faith. That's what Paul calls it here. True and genuine faith cannot be overstated. Now, personally, I take a very high view of Scripture. So it may come as a shock to hear, but this alone is not enough to save you. This is paper with ink on it, wrapped in something pretending to be leather. (laughs) You know, this will not save you. If it could then our trinity would be God the Father, God the Son, and then the Holy Bible. It's not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God has placed eternity in the hearts of man because it will not fit in our heads, and it will not fit in a book either. We cannot simply read and expect to understand the Bible correctly without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. This is God-inspired in its writing and it is God-interpreted in its understanding. His ways are above our ways and his thoughts far beyond our thoughts. Now, don't misunderstand me. When we are looking to establish sound doctrine, we cannot, we must not stray from the plumb line of Scripture. To do so would be a fatal error. 
But nor can we neglect the Holy Spirit of God in its interpretation. If we do either, we are in deep, deep trouble. You see, Artie Kendall, I like Artie Kendall. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, um, but I think he's good on this. So Artie Kendall speaks of a silent divorce that has happened within the church between word and spirit, describing many congregations as being like children who feel they have to pick sides or pick a favorite parent. He writes, what is the message of those on the word side? Well, it's straightforward. The honor of God's name is at stake. His honor will not be restored until we get back to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We must get back to the doctrine of the apostles. We need clear Bible teaching in the pulpit. We must embrace the theology that has re- was rediscovered during the great reformation of the 16th century, which turned the Western world upside down. Justification by faith alone, the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit by which we know the Bible is the word of God and a robust view of the sovereignty of God. What's wrong with that emphasis? Nothing at all. In my opinion, it's exactly right. He goes on to say, then consider the example of those on the spirit side. What is their message? Well, it's straightforward. The honor of God's name is at stake. It will not be restored until we get back to the experience of the apostles as demonstrated in the book of Acts. There were signs, wonders, miracles. The gifts of the Spirit uh, were in operation. When they had a prayer meeting, the place was shaken. If you got into Peter's shadow, you were healed. If you lied to the Holy Spirit, you were struck dead right on the spot. Until we rediscover the exper- and, and experience that level of power, the church will continue to have minimal, if any, influence in the world. What's wrong with that, influ- with that emphasis? Nothing at all. In my opinion, it's exactly right. The problem is that when we go to most churches, we either find one or the other. See, much like our eyes, um, if we limit ourselves to only half of what God has intended us to have, our perception of reality becomes skewed. If I walk around with one of my eyes closed for long enough, granted it doesn't necessarily happen straight away, but if I walk around with one of my eyes closed for long enough, then I will lose my depth perception. My ability to accurately judge what's around me how far it is from me, uh, all, all these, these really important things. <laughs> and over time, I would u- lose the ability to accurately judge my movements and the world around me. And ultimately, I would end up banging into things, causing damage wherever I go, hurting myself, and probably knocking a few other people over as well. And it's this attitude to word and spirit that has made the Ephesian church so, such fertile ground for false teaching. See, we need binocular vision. Okay, that's, that's two eyes. We need two eyes that give two perspectives on one view. That then reconcile to give an accurate representation of what it is that we're looking at. The same is true of sound doctrine. 
We must approach all aspects of the Christian life with both word and spirit. Two perspectives that must come together and reconcile in order to bring the accuracy and depth required to navigate through the Christian life with sound doctrine, which in turn allows us to identify that which is false. In Matthew 7, 15 to 20, Jesus tells us to watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious. By by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruits, you will recognize them. This is not a soft teaching. You know, where we see false teaching, where we see false doctrine, when we look at the fruits of of, of what's in front of us, and we do not see Jesus and we do not see solid biblical orthodoxy we are to cut it down but you see each of us is inclined to take refuge in the approach to faith that appeals to us most for some they just want the security of God's word to the detriment of the spirit. Others are drawn to the the living power, the flame of the Holy Spirit, uh, to the point where they are distracted from what the Bible actually teaches. But the reality is that when both word and spirit come together, when they both occupy the center ground of our faith, that's when we move into what Paul describes as genuine faith. Because if you stay on the extreme of either end, you will stumble over your own sense of what is right and what is wrong, and you will leave yourself vulnerable. See, I like, I like to exercise. Um, I, just, I just like picking up heavy stuff and putting it down again. And I know it's not clever. I know it's not technical. But I just love it. Um, it helps me stay in shape, and it helps me... You know, from it just helps me manage my emotions at times, I'll be honest. Um, plus, the Bible says it's good for us. Um, but you see, for whatever reason, the right side of my body is naturally stronger than the left. Um, I have a muscular imbalance. Um, most people do. Most people aren't aware of it. Uh, but most people are stronger on one side than the other, just naturally. Um, yeah, so the right side of my chest is, is more developed than the left side of my chest. Uh, no, I'm not going to prove it. Uh, but I'm still able to lift some pretty heavy weights. Um, in the same way that there are people with a slightly unbalanced approach to uh, their faith that are still very capable and still managing to move uh, the, the kingdom forward. God is, is extending grace to them in their, their misunderstanding. 
But here's the thing, if I don't take action to develop the left side of my body, and I continue to lift, and continue to, to get lift heavier and heavier with this unbalanced muscle distribution, then eventually, that uneven load that I'm putting through my body will put negative forces on my spine, and I will end up in pain, I will probably damage myself, and I will limit my ability to train effectively or possibly even move properly. You see, my muscular imbalance is not going to sort itself out if I just keep training the way I do. It's going to lead me to a bad place. And I have to acknowledge and address my weaknesses in order to remain healthy and to become stronger. So this morning, I'm asking you to examine your heart and your attitude before God on this matter. Are you carrying an imbalance in your faith? Are you neglecting the importance of the Holy Spirit in your walk? Are you so interested in things of the Spirit that you are neglecting to remain in line with, with God's revealed word in Scripture? Because let me tell you, that's a dangerous place to be. You are going to fall into false doctrine. And when you are in a place where you believe things that are not in line with the Bible, it is dangerous, not only for your growth and for your development, but it is entirely possible that I've, I've seen whole movements of church who believe they are saved through false doctrine when actually these people need Jesus. We cannot hide behind our preferences. When, as a personal trainer, there was something I used to say to people. There's nothing grows in the comfort zone. Everyone, everyone would complain. Oh, dude, this is horrible. Why are you doing this to me? I hate you. I was like, listen, listen. Nothing grows in the comfort zone. Which, obviously, made them want to slap me. Um, but, but there's truth in it. Your comfort zone in matters of word and spirit cannot override the necessity for sound doctrine. Doctrine that protects us from what is false, that transforms and shapes us daily into the image of Christ, in whom we find the ultimate, the perfect expression of word and spirit. John 1.14 In the beginning was the Word and the Word was God the Word was with God and the Word was God He was with God in the beginning through Him all things were made without Him nothing was made that has been made in Him was life and that life was the light of all mankind the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome. If we are to combat the darkness of false teaching, then we are to bathe ourselves in the light of Christ. There is no more beautiful expression of word and spirit. 
Father God, we love you. We honor you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to fill us again, fill us afresh this morning, that we would interpret your words with clarity, in truth, in the light of the grace that we have received through the life, death, and resurrection of our perfect example, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, convict us this morning where we are imbalanced in our approach to the Christian life, in our approach to Scripture. Highlight to us where we need to surrender our need to understand everything and lean more on the Holy Spirit. Father God, highlight areas where we have been carried away in, in, uh, in pursuit of, of spiritual experience to the detriment of the gospel, of the truth of your word. Lord, protect our hearts and our minds as we approach you. And transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Amen.